left fielders. Welcome to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. We are building a community of investors who are interested in acquiring real assets that produce real cash flow. Our community is focused on networking and education to help people invest passively and think differently. Let's go. When we talk about all these things about passive investing to be financially free and that kind of thing, what we're really talking about is having control of our lives and having more time. And when we have more time, I think we can become happier. But you have to really think about what's important in life. And if you look at the research, it shows that if you make sixty dollars to $75,000, that's pretty much where emotional well-being peaks. So if you go beyond that, life satisfaction doesn't necessarily go up. It's not always about the money. I think having experiences and spending time with your family and friends and helping others is really where it's at. That's coming right up. But first, I want to introduce TribeVest, our show sponsor. I have Travis Smith here, the founder and CEO. Travis, you know I'm a fan of your platform and I'm a member in four different tribes. In fact, I like the platform so much, I'm also an investor. Can you share some of the ways you think TribeVest can help build wealth for passive investors? Thanks, Jim. Well, as you know, we've built a platform that empowers people to easily and safely form investor tribes. If you're a part of an investor tribe, you can participate in deals that maybe you wouldn't or couldn't on your own. And I think that's why TribeVest is so popular amongst passive investors. Think about it. Deals start at 25000 but I've seen investment minimums as high as $100,000 or even $200,000. And I don't care who you are. Those are big checks to be writing as a solo investor. But as a tribe, each member can drastically lower their capital requirement and spread the risk on the deal. Or another way to look at it is where maybe as a solo investor, you might invest in one deal, but with your tribe, you could invest in five, maybe 10 deals. You can think of tribe investing as a wealth building experience with the people you know, like, and trust. If there are left fielders who are interested in learning more, please have them check out tribevest.com or reach out to me directly. Jim, we are thrilled to be a part of Passive Investing from Left Field and excited to listen to your interview with this week's guest. You are listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast powered by TribeVest. The mission of Left Field Investors is to build a community of like-minded individuals interested in creating financial freedom through passively investing in real assets that generate real cash flow. In this podcast, Jim Piper will interview passive investors, syndicators, and others who will share their journey with a focus on helping the passive real estate investor learn and become part of the Left Field community. This is Dan Hanford from PassiveInvesting.com, and you're listening to Passive Investing from Left Field Podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have Steve Sue, one of the founders of Left Field Investors with us. His day job is as an ophthalmologist, and he's also host of the Healthy Eyes 101 podcast. We met through another networking group here in Columbus, Ohio, and when we were trying to start a passive investing group, I connected again with Steve and, and we started this together. And he was the one that I talk about a lot in podcasts as the first one who gave me a little bit of confidence because he and I found out that we invested with one of the same sponsors and were in one of the same deals. So I'm really pleased to have Steve here today. He's a great resource for the Left Field Investor Founders Group. As I said, we're thankful to have him. Steve, welcome to Passive Investing from Left Field. 
Well, thanks for having me on the podcast, Jim. This is an honor. And um, without you, I just want the left field investors to know that uh, without you, there would be no left field investors. And you've been the engine that's been running this this whole time. And uh, Sean and Chad and Ryan and I are just kind of along for the ride, just trying to help out peripherally. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. And, and as you know, we all we all work together. And um, I think uh, you know, left field investors has come a long way since we started, and that's a testament to uh, to all of us working on it and, and pushing forward. Today, what I want to talk about as having one of the founders of left field investors on the podcast. You're the third one to be on, and what I'd like to get is kind of if you can start with your journey, where you've been, how you got here. I assume at some point you were investing mostly in the market, and then you kind of transitioned to some or all of your money into these passive syndications. So can you just talk about that from the beginning? Well, absolutely. Sure. So I finished up my ophthalmology residency in about in 1998. And that's when I started getting interested in investing in general. And that was about the time of the tech boom. And so the internet was uh, very accessible. So I started doing some, well, they call it day trading, but I was doing more night trading since I worked during the day. And I really got into that and and, uh, would come home and do all my research and invest in this tech stock or that tech stock. And then I made some decent money for um, for uh, just getting out of residency or, or finishing up residency, and then 2000 hit, 2001 hit, and uh, lost pretty much all the money that I invested at that time. Luckily, I had some other money and other investments as well that uh, I wasn't touching. So, anyways, along the way, probably a year or two later, I read a, a book called Rich Dad Poor Dad, just like many other real estate investors have done, and then I also read The Cash Flow Quadrant by uh, Robert Kiyosaki. And that those books really changed my mindset about investing and, and in terms of investing in things outside of Wall Street, like we always say, there's there's other investments out there. And that's what the whole philosophy of left field investors is, is to think outside of the box and um, kind of think out in left field. So anyways, my, our, my first purchase, if you will, for real estate outside of our own home was our office condo where we practice. And so my partner and I bought that in 2005. That was certainly easy. We pay rent to ourselves and uh, we got some tax deductions off that. So that's been really easy. But the next steps weren't quite as easy. I educated myself, read a lot of books, did some home study courses, went to some local real estate association, uh, investment association meetings. And the first syndication that I got into was not actually true, truly real estate. It was actually oil wells. I got the name of this person through one of the local RIA meetings and talked to him multiple times. It seems like I could, I liked him and I, I thought I could trust him. However, the uh, story didn't end too well. I got some small distributions at first, and then eventually they just kind of petered out and then got nothing. And then there was just radio silence on the other end too, whenever I tried to uh, get a hold of him. So it ended up after some Google searches many years later, I found out that it was pretty much a Ponzi scheme, just like a lot of these oil well things seem to be. But um, and that's not the knock oil wells. I mean, they're truly good investments if you are with the right operators. And then after that, I discovered podcasts, I think around 2010, and just really delved into real estate information and investing through those podcasts. I um, learned about turnkey real estate, and I've, I bought a, a single family house in Cincinnati and owned that for about seven years. And I'll get to some other parts of that story here in a minute. But uh, I, a couple of years later, I bought a four unit here in Columbus. And I found a property manager for that as well. The uh, issues, though, was with the first house. I ended up having five different pro- um, property managers for that for that one house over about seven years. 
And so I was really managing the manager at that point. So it wasn't really passive for me. And as a full-time physician, I found that to be annoying and awkward. And so um, I, I ended up selling that and getting rid of that property. And then I ended up getting rid of the four unit as well. But along the way, though, I just want to mention that, uh, you know, for, for liability purposes, I put the, the title of those two small residential uh, houses in my LLC. And so, of course, the bank loan is in my name. Well, you've heard about uh, getting your loans called with a due on sale clause because it's no longer in your name. Well, that's what happened to me. So you may have heard of people say, theoretically, that can happen to you. And uh, I think I'm the only person I know of that, <laughs> that this happened to. It was with the same bank. So that was a bit stressful. I tried calling a bunch of different banks and email. I, I spent a lot of time doing this. And I didn't want to get them out of my name because of uh, what I do and that kind of thing to, in terms of liability. So it was very difficult finding an LLC loan. And I ended up just paying them off. And uh, that uh, fortunately had some cash. So I was able to uh, just pay those off and then um, was able to refinance one. And I ended up selling the other soon after that. So anyways, it all ended up, ended up okay, but that was certainly a lesson learned. Then I did my first real estate syndication. It happened to be a, um, a kind of a resort property in Puerto Rico. That's, we still own that one. Uh, we had to make a pivot on that. And now it's uh, more of a, a condo uh, sale at this point and not really a resort. So um, that's that should end well, but it, it's just been a long haul with that one and not a whole lot of returns. I did buy one more property. It was a college rental in Oxford, Ohio, which is where Miami University is. My son went to school there and ended up living there for two years. And so that was a nice purchase for us. And it does cash flow pretty well. And I still own it to this day. So other than my office condo, those are probably the only two properties I'll probably hold them personally. So I did get, get some education along the way in terms of syndications. I did the Real Estate Guys Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar, and I did Brad Sumrock's Rat Race to Riches a weekend course, and I learned a lot about syndications there. And I and just like you, I learned that I think I'm better off being a passive investor and not an active syndicator. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So ended up uh, buying some self, or excuse me, investing in some self storage uh, facilities, and I'm in a variety of uh, multifamily um, syndications as well, and have done um, some more unique assets such as underperforming resorts, coffee farm in Panama, uh, wellness resort in Costa Rica, and uh, ATMs and even a Broadway show. So that's uh, pretty much my story from start to finish. Well, that, that's great. There's a lot to dig into there. And, and the first thing I'd like to do is back up to the very beginning when you got into your first syndication in the oil and gas. It's a story similar to one of our other founders, Sean Donnelly, as his first syndication, I think his first syndication didn't work and neither did his first flip. And the question I asked him, and I'd like to ask you the same thing, is how did you decide to keep going in real estate and in syndications when the first, the first couple steps didn't work out for you? What gave you the confidence that, hey, this is still something I want to do? Yeah, that's a great question. It did make me a little gun shy to invest in other people's deals and that kind of thing. I think it was just the fact that you read these books and you listen to people on these podcasts and they say that you know, real estate is where a lot of wealth is made. And so you just have to keep chugging along. And um, I, I studied um, how to do wholesaling, how to do flips, how to do um, lease options and those kinds of things. That just wasn't right for me. So I think buy and hold was certainly the my avenue. And that's uh, probably why I, I started off with single family homes, just like most people do when they do buy and hold, just because uh, you're, you're a newbie. And then I ended up just finding property managers. But it may seem 
daunting after you lose a lot of money from some some of your first indications. But I also lost a lot of money 20 years ago in the stock market too. So, but uh, and I still have all my 401k and mutual funds and, and bonds and that kind of thing too. And I kind of jokingly say that instead of being a, a left fielder, I'm more of a center fielder because I have right field investments and left field investments. That's interesting, you know, because we have a lot of similarities in in the journey on how we got here. You know, I was also investing in turnkey and I, I didn't find it very passive because, you know, I also went through several different property managers and you end up managing the manager and it and it's a pain. So the other thing that surprised me, and I'd like to talk about this just real briefly, because I've never met anyone who got the do on sale clause called. I put all of my turnkeys and every property I've ever owned, aside from my house, I put into LLCs and never got called on it. So can you talk about it? what happens? Do you have time? Is it immediate? Can you just talk to the process? Because we hear a lot about this, but you never hear it actually happening. Why did they call it? So what happened was I, I used a lender who was well-known in the uh, real estate investor space, person in Cincinnati. And he was great. He, uh, I, I really like him. I still like him to this day. His bank got bought out by another bank. I think what happened, according to him, was they found out that the title was not in my name because I had to change my insurance too. So the insur- it was in, insured in my name. And then, of course, when I changed title to my LLC, LLC I had a, a commercial insurance policy under my LLC. So that's how the bank was notified. Now, how many other investors they did this to, I have absolutely no idea. But I got this letter in the mail, and then I got another letter in the mail that said the same exact thing for both my properties. It said, you owe us all this money for the house because of uh, you broke the contract on your mortgage, I guess. So yeah, and like I said, I had to uh, call a bunch of bankers. And like I said, I, for liability's sake, I didn't want to put the title in my personal name. In retrospect, I, I guess I could have done that temporarily, then refinanced it, and, and then did the same thing over. But then again, having just gone through the due on sale, I don't want that to happen a, se- a second time. Right. So anyways, I just happened to have the cash for these properties on hand. I wasn't investing all of it into syndications, fortunately, at that point. But yeah, it was certainly a daunting uh, situation. And I, I think I consulted my attorney and he said, well, you know, th- these are the options here. So anyways... The easy thing, I think, if you're stuck is just put it back in your name and then uh, just get a new loan, right? So they give you time. It's not like they send you a letter and then the next day you have to have it all squared away, right? They give you some time because that was always my concern. Like I could handle it if it happened as long as they give you enough time to to get through it. Right. I don't recall the timeline and I don't know if they actually gave me a timeline, but some people say that, you know, you, you do have more time than you think you do. Yeah. But I didn't want to test that. No, I don't blame you. So. Going back to some of the other syndications you're in, you know, I'm in the coffee farm as well. Uh, you're in the Costa Rica deal. You're in a Puerto Rico deal. What got you into all these offshore kind of deals? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think part of it was I didn't know about apartment syndications, believe it or not. And the first ones I ran into were some of these international ones. So I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. And, you know, one of the biggest downsides of being a passive investor is it's boring. I mean, truly, there's not anything to do except to just, you know, read the emails that they send you for the updates and make sure your, your bank account is, is getting filled with the, uh, the returns. Um, you know, you're, you're not, you're not uh, vying for a property against someone else and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there's not a thrilling situation. It's just kind of like watching paint dry, in my opinion. But anyways, I'm not knocking it. I'm certainly uh, all in on it. But my wife and I like to travel. 
And uh, we've, we've stayed at this resort in Puerto Rico a few times, just as a side benefit, and um, uh, have not been to the coffee farm in Panama. But we did go to the, the resort in Costa Rica, which was very beautiful and very nice. And it's just in the beginning stages, it's kind of a development deal. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's just, it's something that we can do and we can kind of get our feet wet, if you will, and just kind of look at what's, how the development is going, going on. Uh, my latest one was a winery resort in New Jersey through Accountable Equity. Um, you had Josh McAllen on our second episode. Uh, so I, I got hooked up with him through the Real Estate Guys radio podcast. And so I'm involved in his resort in New Jersey, and that's doing great. It's doing fantastic. They, he always says that he thinks resorts are a great asset class at this point because of COVID. And a lot of um, these mom and pop resort owners are trying to sell them off at this point because they weren't ready to. Uh, they weren't ready for this kind of uh, earthquake to happen under their feet. So he doesn't want underperforming her hotels. He wants underperforming resorts. So this is a winery. There's a golf course next to it, and they concentrate on weddings. And uh, they've, they've, I think they've booked something like over 400 weddings this year. And they can do that because they have multiple venues around the around the resort that they can hold each wedding. So. Um, and the nice thing about weddings is it's prepay. So you actually get money up front from these people as a down payment. So that's also nice for that. And, and I've already been getting some returns from it. That's great. That is an interesting way to invest. And I'm also invested with him. And if, if any of the listeners want to hear more about that, as uh, Steve said, you can go back to episode two of Passive Investing from Left Field. And Josh McCallum is on there and he, he talks all about his resort investing. And it is really a good time to to get into things like that. But we're also still investing in apartments and, and other things. And, and I wanted to talk to you specifically about the deal analyzer that we have on the left field investors, infielders, membership only area. Can you talk a little bit first about what, how you use the deal analyzer? Because I know you were, you know, we all kind of developed that together. What do you do with that? How does it help you become a better investor or has it? And just to back up real quick, because I know we had talked when we first met how you know we didn't really have a way to analyze the deals. We would analyze the sponsors, but then when a deal came up, we would look at it and say, okay, I think, I think it's good, but you never really knew. So can you talk a little right. bit if that's changed and, and how you're looking at deals differently now? Right, and this journey that we've been through together with uh, setting up this group has really helped me along the way in terms of uh, vetting deals, especially um, the sponsors. I mean, I think you can kind of know, like, and trust people, but uh, with the deals, I would see, oh, that's that looks like a nice uh, IRR. That looks like a nice cash flow uh, every quarter. So I think I'm going to invest in this deal. I mean, it's it's a great location. So so I think I was like you initially, and then as we started delving into books like The Hands Off Investor by Brian Burke, whom you've had on the podcast, you know, we've really um, honed down all these metrics into one Excel spreadsheet, and uh, it's really helped me a lot. And the way I use it, it's kind of like a pilot checklist. If I'm not a pilot, but I mean, I've been in small planes where there's a huge long checklist that you have to go through and everything has to be just right before you can actually get off the ground. So this is kind of, to me, kind of like the pilot checklist. So, and the one thing that I really look at, uh, because, you know, the primary metrics like IRR, cash on cash returns, that kind of thing, that's, that's all fine and dandy. But I like to look at the risk of an investment. And there's several metrics that we have on there that I, I really like to uh, hone in on. So rule number one for investing is never lose money. And rule number two is never forget rule number one. So after having been through some losses from the stock market crash and from oil well investments, I really like to vet any investment I do. Certainly we can get into uh, 
is a coffee farm in, in Panama risky or is Broadway show risky? We can certainly talk about that here uh, <laughs> later on in the podcast. But the things I look for in terms of assessing risk or reducing, helping, helping to reduce risk is looking at the debt to ser- debt service coverage ratio, you know, um, you know, how much debt are they taking on? And usually the banks like to see 1.25%. I like to see it at least closer to 1.5% personally in, in year one. And certainly as that goes on, it decreases or excuse me, increases. But the um, break-even occupancy for me, typically banks like to see about 85% break-even occupancy. And what that means is you take all the operating expenses and the debt service, and then you divide that by the total potential rental income. So banks like to see about 85% break-even occupancy. I personally like to see it below 80%. And a lot of the deals I'm in, they're down into the 50 to 60%. So that really gives me a lot of comfort because then they, that means if they're their economic occupancy is 55%, they're at least they're paying off the expenses in the debt service. Some of the other things I like to look at specifically are rent growth. If it's too aggressive, I don't like that, especially in a value add deal. If they're turning units, how can they be increasing their rent by six, 7% the first year or even the second year? Uh, so I like to see rent growth that's very conservative, maybe zero to 1% in the first year and maybe two to 4% growth in subsequent years. The Cap rate, I think, is extremely important to look at. This is where you can really change up things in terms of your, your returns. And so the sponsors can really manipulate this. So the entry cap rate is, is one thing, but, but what you want to really look for is the exit cap rate and the res- or the reversion cap rate. And sometimes they're not even in the executive summaries, which, which is a little disturbing. So you have to ask them. I like to see the, the exit cap rate at least 0.5% higher than the entry cap rate. Personally, I like to really see them at least 1% or at least an illustration of 1% or above. And then that way I can look at the IRR, things like that. So and the cash and cash returns. And then we can delve into uh, my favorite metric, which is IRR partitioning, if you'd like. Yeah. Before we do that, before we do that, I'd like to touch on two things you said. Mm -hmm. One is is the cap rate. Can you talk about, so when you say reversion or exit cap rate, that's when they sell the property, what they expect the cap rate at sale to be. So can you talk about why it's important to have a higher cap rate at sale? Right. So the purchase price is the net operating income divided by the cap rate. So if you have a lower denominator, the cap rate, so let's say that for some reason they have an exit cap rate that's lower than the entry cap rate, they could do nothing and they'll make more money on the purchase just by selling. And just because you, you simply reduce the cap rate from, say, 4.5% to 4%. So because you're reducing that denominator, so you're making that sale price larger. So if the exit cap rate is equal to the entry cap rate, that's one thing. But, but that's assuming a lot because you, you're not going to sell that property probably for three to seven, eight years possibly. So you're essentially predicting what the cap rate is going to be, which is difficult to do. So that's why I like to be I like to see conservative metrics in terms of the um, or parameters in terms of the exit cap rate, because if it is higher and you're making a great IRR, I feel more comfortable with that. Yeah, and that makes sense. I think to me, when when I look at it, I kind of, you know, we have a lot of the same metrics because we've talked about this a lot together. And I think if they are projecting a lower cap rate at sale, as you said, it means that they don't have to do anything to the property to increase the value. And what I like to see is that they're forcing appreciation. So you can still make the property values go up, but you're not relying on the market. In fact, you're saying the market's going to be worse 
for a seller when I sell, but this deal is still going to pencil out to make money. So I like looking at it that way. The other question I had is about rent rent growth. And you said that you don't like it when they have rent growth that's too aggressive, particularly in the first year. And I'd like to, uh, if you could talk a little bit about what too aggressive might be. And as an example, a recent uh, deal I looked at had 8% growth in year one. And I asked the syndicator about that. And they said, well, in our market, which happened to be Phoenix on this deal, the um, rent increases are already 8% annual growth for, mo- for this type of apartment. And they were already getting that, the pro forma rents, the 8% rent bump before the deal was even closed on new move outs. So I guess my question, this is a long-winded way of asking, what's too aggressive and how would you deal with that situation where the syndicator is saying, yes, but the market is already handling that 8%. It isn't really just the, the growth that we're expecting. It's the market growth. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think it's a trust for verify situation. Certainly in a an A-class deal where uh, that's, that's um, underperforming, if their rents are not up to par with the surrounding area, then certainly you, you should see some decent rent growth maybe in the first year because they're not going to necessarily be renovating the units to force appreciation and increase rents. So in an A-class deal, I mean, I don't know what the parameters would be, but I mean, I, I guess you know, three, four, five percent wouldn't be a bad thing. But certainly if you're raising rents on people, people will be moving out too. So you're going to have maybe, you know, several weeks or months of, uh, of vacancies on your properties, even though, you know, if it's, a, if it's a huge property, it won't certainly make as much of a difference. But if it's a smaller, like a, like a hundred unit, that can certainly um, uh, start decreasing your, uh, your net operating income. So in a value add deal, when you're at, where you're actually renovating units, so no one is actually living in those units, you cannot rent that out for several weeks. So you don't want to see too aggressive uh, rent growth on those deals, which would be normally class C or class B apartments, because you are taking people out of their apartments. Well, I mean, excuse me, you're not renting them to anyone because you're renovating them. So if you see in a value add deal, that the rent growth is 5%, 4%. I think that's a little too aggressive to be asking for that in the first year, even if the rents are not up to par. They're trying to force appreciation to make the rents go up to par. But again, they're going to be vacant because you have to renovate them somehow. Right. And I think part of what you said, you know, trust but verify, that kind of makes sense, right? Because if they're saying there's 8% rent increases like they were on this deal, I didn't end up investing in it. But the way she explained it, made some sense. Now, I don't know that they would get the full 8% because as you said, they're going to have move outs. They're going to have other things that even if the market supports 8%, you're not going to get 8% on all of them in year one because you'd have to raise them all day one when you buy it to get it all done by year one. So I think part of it is just asking the question. And that's what the deal analyzer has really helped me with is it usually provides me with four or five red flags. And these are metrics that the didn't fit our parameters doesn't mean to me, it doesn't mean don't do the deal. It means ask the questions. So before we get to the IRR partitioning, has using this tool, has this given you insight on any deals that said that showed you, hey, I'm not going to invest in this deal and it's because of something that came up on the analyzer? Well, sure. I mean, I know the analyzer pretty well. So, you know, once I think once you get to a certain point, you don't have to literally fill out every single parameter. But I I look at certain things like economic vacancy, which includes a lot of other parameters. And if those are uh, not where they normally should be, then I, 
either ask the question or uh, maybe I'll pass on the deal if there's other parameters I d- that I don't look at. So certainly, like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a checklist, especially for the uh, not so experienced um, investor. I think it's a great uh, tool that we have in our, um, in our armamentarium for investors to look at and uh, to feel a little bit more comfortable with the individual deals. Okay. That's excellent. And you know, We've been kind of in the weeds, and that's how you and I are on, on this when we start talking about the deal analyzer, but we're going all in right now. <laughs> we're going so deep in the weeds, I don't even know how deep we're going. You have talked about IRR partitioning for a long time, and we finally got it integrated into the, into the deal analyzer. I've had several conversations with you about it. I'm still not confident that I understand it completely, so at Right now, I'd like you to just kind of talk about what IRR partitioning is, and then also, how do you use it? What, what information does it give you as far as, is this a good deal to invest in or not? Okay, well, let me start off with just IRR, which is internal rate of return. So that's a metric that uh, kind of shows you the average annual return that an investor can, can get uh, from an investment. So, but it also combines that profitability with the time value of money. So this is one reason why I like to use IRR over looking at AAR, which is average annualized return. Those are two different things because AAR does not take into account the time value of money. And here's one uh, example of the difference between the two. So let's say you invest 50000 into an, a syndication and there's a planned five-year hold. And let's say there's two deals. So in the first deal, there's no cash flow for five years. At the end of year five, you get $100,000, which includes your original equity. So essentially, you doubled your money, right? So that's an annualized return of 20%. Okay, so in the, in the second deal, you invest 50000 into that deal. It's a five-year hold. At the end of year one, you get $50,000 back. Okay, but then there's no cash flow years two, three, four. And then at the end of year five, you get $50,000 back. So you have received, again, $100,000, which you doubled your money. Again, the annualized return there is 20%, okay? So it's the same annualized return, but there's a huge difference between those two investments. In the first scenario, you didn't receive any money until the end of the project was sold. And with scenario two, you got half of your money back after year one, and then you got the rest of the money at at the sale. So when you look at the IRR between the two, in scenario one, the IRR is 14.9%, which is respectable. And then in scenario two, though, the IRR is 32.5%, so much, much higher than in scenario two versus scenario one. But if you just look at the annualized return, it's 20%, and you doubled your money. So those parameters, to me, don't really tell you the full picture of how that asset's going to perform. So why is that important? Well, in terms of IRR partitioning, that is a metric that divides the two categories of the IRR, of the cash flows. So you have cash flows from operations, which would be mainly rental income, but that can include late fees, pet fees, laundry facility fees, those kinds of things. And then the second aspect of that is the cash flow from the sale of the property, which usually includes the return of some of the capital, if not all the capital, if there was no refi. Okay. So essentially, it's, it's, it's the income from day one to sales proceeds. That's one part of the cash flow. And then there's a sale proceeds. So the post-sale proceeds, in other words. Okay. So 
So why is that important? Well, again, and it has to do with the time value of money. The earlier I get the money back, number one, it's less risky because I have less money on the table. You know, if I get $10,000 back in the first year, $10,000 back the second year, and I've only invested 50,000 after two years, or I've already received $20,000 back. So to me, that's, that's safer because now I have $20,000 out of the deal. Okay. So with this, I put pretty much all the deals through this IR partitioning analysis. And for five-year holds in multifamily, usually you'll see a division of from the cash flow from operations to the sales proceeds ratio of around you know, 22 to 28% in terms of rental income. So that means 70, 72 to 78% will be coming from the, the sales proceeds. So I, I just make it easy and say uh, most of them will be around 25% from the cash flow from rent, and then 75% will be from the cash flow from the sales proceeds and return of your equity. Okay. So for me, this is a another parameter that you can look at in terms of risk. So again, if we take off more, if you get more of your money back earlier, the safer the the investment's gonna be. And it's more the cash flow from rents is definitely more predictable than cash flow from the resale, just like trying to predict what the exit cap rate is going to be in five years or 10 years. Mm-hmm. We're not going to know what, this, what the property is going to sell for because, because of that. So it's less predictable. So that's why I want to see more cash flow on the front end versus the back end, right? So if you look at development deals, projects that are from the ground up, you know, they're going to have really huge disparities. You might know, have 10% cash flow from from the from from the uh, rental income because there's nothing there in the first few years until they start developing and maybe three years later they may have some units that are open and then but the majority of your investment is going to come back on the back end after the sale same with like really heavy value add properties the splits might be much wider apart okay but in like in a stabilized class a multifamily apartment you're going to have splits that are going to be maybe 35 65 split it's going to be much much closer together and that's why they would, you know, most people would say that class A properties are potentially safer because you know what the rents are today. And the, those rents are probably going to continue for a while and probably increase. And so you're going to get more of your cash flow back earlier on in, in the deal. So that's pretty much um, how I look at IRR partitioning. That's why I like it so much. And I, any deal I see, I, that's usually one of the first things I do. Okay. So, and it changes based on, as you said, the type of asset, right? Correct. Or the the strategy. The if it's heavy mm-hmm. value add, it's going to have a lower first number. It'll be more like fifteen eighty five, right? And if it's mm-hmm. uh not any value add, it's just like a class A that was just built and you, it's already cash flowing. It might be thirty five sixty five or something Correct. like that. Correct. It, and and it's based on there's not as much upside on on those. You're getting more cash flow during the deal, not as much upside. Is that kind of how it is? Absolutely. Yeah. All right. And okay. I, I and I haven't really done enough self storage deals, industrial deals, to really get a good handle on this. From what I understand, self storage is you get a little bit more money on the on the back end after the sale, so it's more like a um, uh, like a development deal because a lot of self storage deals will actually add on more units. So that's kind of like the, a development deal. So so I think those you'll see a wider disparity in the IRR partitioning. And just so everybody knows, you didn't do those initial IRR calculations in your head, right? You did those and were prepared <laughs> on a of spreadsheet. Of course, in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I got the IRR calculator in my head. No, no, of course not. Not. No, I, I knew that I knew we were going to be talking about this, so I, I wanted to give a, a, an example that was extreme, just to, just to illustrate the difference between IRR and, and annualized returns. Yeah, and I thought that was a great example because you don't realize if you give someone 
50 grand and they give you 100 grand back, if you let them hold it all for five years, your returns are much lower than if they give you part of it back halfway through. And that's just the time value of money. And I think that's left out of a lot of people's calculations because there's also the opportunity cost. If they give you that 50 grand back in year two, you can go invest it in another deal. And that's the velocity of money and creating one or two assets from one one bucket of money. So that, that was a great, great explanation. I appreciate that. Now you mentioned self-storage and mobile homes that we don't really have the exact um, IR partitioning knocked out yet. But can you talk a little bit about other asset classes? I, I want to get to the unique asset classes, but kind of the standard ones. What are your favorites right now? What are you looking at? What are you investing in right now? Is it apartments mostly? Is it self-storage? Is it mobile homes, ATMs? Just briefly, kind of wh- where are you at with, um, with what you're investing in? Sure. Yeah, I, I certainly like multifamily. That's always my go-to. I think at this stage in the market, that's maybe the um, the ones that are um, going to cash flow the best at this point. Um, I have not invested in any self-storage. Uh, I think it's been about three years since I've invested in a self-storage investment at this point. I, I still like the asset class. Um, I'd like to see what the returns are. None of, none of them have, have uh, gone full cycle. So I'd like to see what the returns and the IRR are on those uh, asset classes before I do any more. I am interested in mobile home parks and industrial. I think those are uh, classes that um, have a good future, and, and they've always had a pretty decent future. But um, you know, I'm I'm always looking at deals, always putting them through uh, at least part of the deal analyzer just to see. I'm just always curious about that. But you know, at some point, you also you may actually run out of a little bit of, uh, of liquidity at, at some point because I'm in I'm in you know over 20 deals at this point, so I'm I've only had one gone full cycle, so you're kind of stuck at a certain point sometimes like this. So uh, right now I'm just waiting for some refis or uh, some some deals to go full cycle so I can reinvest the money. Right. As you said earlier, you're waiting for the paint to dry, right? So you can yeah, get into right, a new right. one. Yeah, I'm, I'm bored here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're bored, let's talk about the unique asset classes because this, when you talked about the Broadway show that you invested in, that really got me excited about it until COVID ended investing in Broadway. But can you talk about your Broadway show and, and any of the other unique asset classes you're in? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Broadway is kind of a favorite of mine. I'm, my wife and I are big fans of Broadway shows and always have been. I I heard uh, a woman named Erica Schwartz on a podcast several years ago, and that kind of intrigued me since I do like really out and left field investments like that. So I talked to her for a while. She's a very nice woman. And her husband is uh, Matt Pacheni, who is a apartment syndicator who, whom I've invested in as well. But anyways, just to give you some background, yeah, Broadway shows are really, really big business. You know, for example, the the Lion King has uh, grossed over one point six billion dollars. That's a B. It's big money. Um, and if you look at the number of total number of Broadway patrons on a non-COVID year, typically they will have higher attendance than all the New York City metro area sports teams combined, which includes the Yankees, the Knicks, the Nets, Rangers, Giants. That's a lot of games. So there's more people watching Broadway shows on or near Broadway than than actually going to sporting events in New York City. So of course COVID hit and that that really put a uh, stop to uh, all the Broadway revenues, but you know the show that I'm invested in which is called Moulin Rouge is set to start back up in September. So you know just to again to give you a little more background, yeah Broadway shows are very risky. Only 1 in 5 shows recoup their investments meaning only one in five shows will the investors get all their money back. You may get partial money back, but 
some of them, you may actually lose all your money. So again, it's kind of like oil and gas. It's it's a little bit of a uh, you know you're you're digging a hole in the ground and and hoping that something strikes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I but I felt uh, good with uh, working with Erica. She's in the business. She's a general manager of uh, one of the large theaters in Boston. She had trust in the creative team and the the actors are, were well known. She knew the general manager. So, you know, she's she's really one of the producers of the show. And, you know, I, I knew Moulin Rouge uh, was a popular movie back in 2001, and uh, it won a few Oscars. So I knew the show was already was going to be known to a lot of people. And it was already a musical. So and then, and then the other factor was, if you go to the Moulin Rouge show without even knowing anything about them, about the show, you'll probably know at least 90% of the songs because they're all pop and rock songs that are just put to use in, into the um, into the interweaved into the plot. So that's what I also liked about that as well. So in terms of how do you get distributions and that kind of thing, well, you know, certainly they, you don't get, it's like a development deal. You don't get much up front in the first year, maybe even, even in year two. But starting in year two, I started getting some cash flows back and it was actually doing pretty well. And I recouped um, about f- over 40% of my investment from the time I invested. Um, and then again, that's when COVID hit. And I was on, I think I was on par to actually get all my investment back in 2020. But I think, you know, probably in a year, I'll have all my money back from that investment. And then it just goes from there. So the the way that works is with the, if you invest in the original show, not only do you get the royalties from that show on Broadway, any touring show in the US or anywhere else in the world, any West End over in London, Broadway shows that produce it or... Um, in, in Australia, they're going to have a show, T-shirt sales, CD sales. You get a little bit of that as an investor with the original show. So that's uh, that's also kind of nice. So you're actually expanding beyond the original show. And actually, I subsequently invested in the touring show and the West End and the Australian shows as well. So I'll be uh, double dipping on those once those start to recoup. So, um, but yeah, it, again, it is risky, and I. I do like to do some risky investments every once in a while, but I, I try to limit that to a small single digit percentage of my holdings. I really enjoy it because again, we, we, my wife and I did go to New York City and watch the show and it was great and um, glad that we invested in it. Another question for Travis Smith, the founder of TribeVest. Travis, I often talk about group investing and how it can ease someone into passive investing because they're investing with other people. Can you talk about the power of groups and how TribeVest can help new investors get started in syndication investing? I love this question because it reminds me of why we started TribeVest. My brothers and I saw real estate as a way to hack wealth without having to give up our day jobs. And despite not having any real estate investment experience, we found confidence as a tribe and that we'd be making decisions together. We were up for the adventure. We valued the idea of learning and growing together. But we had a more obvious problem than lack of experience. We lacked capital. We had good incomes, but didn't have the lump sums of money to break into syndicate investing. We each committed to contributing $500 monthly. And that was our breakthrough. As a tribe, the capital added up fast. And it wasn't long before we had our first experience in true wealth building. We were now part owners of a physician's office building in beautiful Pasadena, California, and we've been building wealth ever since. So yes, TribeVest is a great tool for people to ease into passive investing because it makes it so easy and it helps you take the most important step, the first one, 
If you start pulling capital, the deals will come. Jim, we realized that if our tribe could do it, any tribe could. By forming and funding our investor tribe, we secured a future we could have never imagined. It really did change our lives. Speaking of the small amount you put into these unique asset classes, pivoting away from the Broadway stuff, which, which I love, and, and as you know, I wanted to get into one of those, but then COVID. So hopefully uh, when, when all those get back up, I'd like to uh, take my shot at it. But you also turned me on to some of these pre-IPO type investments. And you know, in left field, we're not really big stock market investors, but we in, this is investing in companies and businesses, right? So it's a little bit different than than the paper assets that we, at least I normally kind of uh, talk down about. But I've gotten into some of these pre-IPO things as well. Can you talk a little bit about what those are and and kind of what 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 type of companies you're investing in? Right. When we say pre-IPO, we're just hoping that they become an IPO and, and become a Wall Street investment. So I, I mean, really, they're just startups. And there's different stages of startups from angel investing to venture capital. And, and I don't even know all the terms, actually. But there are certain stages after a while where um, you know, I think some of these smaller companies are gaining traction because they're doing something unique in the marketplace. So you know, I've invested in some, some, some small companies. And um, like one is a gaming company that's uh, hopefully that it's going to be like the GameStop of uh, online. Uh, and so instead of selling your games at GameStop, you actually sell them online. And what's nice about that is the the original developers of that game will actually get the second hit or the third hit or fourth hit whenever that game keeps reselling. So that's kind of nice for the developers as well. So these are some things that um, that I'm doing as well. But again, I'm investing literally a thousand or two thousand dollars in some of these companies. Um, and again, it just it just kind of makes investing fun. Just like back in my days of uh, tech investing, just kind of cool to kind of watch these small co- fledgling companies grow up and then. One of my companies, which was a, um, a CBD slash cannabis company, they do a lot of products, uh, make a lot of products with these. It's not it's not for the use of uh, marijuana, but it's it's for making products out of the uh, the byproducts, if you will. And so that actually went public. Uh, I think it was last month. So I'm not selling it yet because it certainly hasn't reached uh, what what I think could be its potential. Um, that the, you know that could be a long play. It could be three years, five years, maybe even seven years. But at least I got in. At I think it was like 70, 75 cents per share, something like that. So, you know, if it hits uh, twenty dollars, that's that's a pretty good return on my on my money. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and you know, I still I, I keep going back to all of the uh, you know the syndications we're doing, which is which is where the you don't they're not very interesting. They're kind of boring, as you said, watching paint dry. But this other stuff, it's smaller stakes, uh, but it's super exciting, especially if you get some twenty x returns, even if it's on a small amount. That makes you feel pretty good. And the w- website that I go to for looking at some of these deals and vetting them is republic.co. And I think you use a different one uh, as well. Yeah, I've been going through our crowd, O-U-R crowd, and the minimums there are a little bit higher, but the and I don't know how they vet the investments on Republic, but they, they vet them and invest in them themselves, which gives me a little bit more confidence. But you can get into a company for, for $5,000, which is still less than we do with the other stuff. And, and again, you know, I, I don't know how to underwrite those or evaluate them properly. So I just kind of look at them and, and see if I, if I like what the product is. I read about it. Do I like the team, the people involved? And then I, I just trust that since uh, our crowd is investing in them, that they at least have a chance. But they also say that a lot of, you know, it's a, it's a one in five thing like the Broadway show. You know, most of these companies probably end up 
going out of business or just lingering or getting bought out. And then you're just hoping that one in five are going to go to the moon and get to 20x, right? Absolutely. So, okay, I think we're, we're actually a little bit longer than, uh, than I'd hoped, but this has been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Uh, the last question I generally ask is, what's, uh, what's a favorite podcast of yours? And you can't use the Healthy Eyes 101 podcast because that's your own. So if you could give me uh, one or two podcasts you like to listen to. Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll try to be as brief as possible, but I would like to expand on the one, though. Uh, so there's three that I chose. So the original real estate podcast I listened to, investing podcast I listened to, was the Real Estate Guys Radio. And I've been to their, one of their seminars as well, as well. But I learned about turnkey, single family homes, syndications from them international investing. So I, I really enjoy their podcast. And that's always one that I always go back to. Uh, there are many, many real estate investing podcasts that I listen to, but uh, this is one that I always that, that I've listened to the longest. Um, in terms of business type things, I, I, I like listening to How I Built This with Guy Raz. He interviews the founders and CEOs of uh, well-known companies, and they go through from like the initial idea to all their trials and tribulations. And and what really made them successful. So that's a, a really uh, great podcast to listen to, especially if you're interested in business. And just a general one here is uh, that I've gotten into in the last year. It's called The Happiness Lab with Lori Santos. She is a professor at Yale, and she's actually um, teaches the most popular course at Yale in the history of the 300 years that Yale has been around. So you, know, you can actually take the online version of that course on Coursera.com. It's called The Science of Wellbeing. My wife and I actually did go through that course, uh, but you know when when we talk about all these things about we're, we're passive investing to to be financially free and that kind of thing, what we're really talking about is is you know having control of our lives and having more time. And and when we have more time, I think um, you know we can become happier. Uh, but you have to really think about you know what's what you know what, what's important in life. And and uh, if you look at the research, it shows that if you make sixty to seventy five thousand dollars U.S. dollars. You know that's pretty much where emotional well-being peaks, um, and then the follow-up study of 1.7 million people done by Purdue showed that yeah the the ideal income point for the maximum life satisfaction was $95,000 U.S. dollars. So if you go beyond that, you know the, you know life satisfaction doesn't necessarily go up. So I think this is a, a nice holistic podcast to be listening to. One of my favorite um, things that she talks about is hedonic adaptation, which is the notion where you know, a lottery winner who who comes upon a millions and millions of dollars, you know, later on, they may not be very happy or, you know, you a new Corvette and then you're very, very happy the first few weeks maybe of, of driving that Corvette. But then, you know, eight months later, it's it's not that big of a deal. It's just another car in your garage, I think. So, um, you know, there's, there's things like that that you can certainly um, learn about in terms of happiness. And, you know, it's not always about the money. It's, a, you know, I, I think having experiences and spending time with your family and friends and helping others is really, um, you know, where, where, where it's at. Well, that's great. I, I like that podcast too. And and I can't find a better way to end our own podcast than on, on that. That was really uh, impactful. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, Steve, uh, we're going to close now. If our listeners wanted to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, they can just email me at steve at leftfieldinvestors.com. Excellent. Yeah. And I'm happy to answer questions. I always like uh, talking about uh, and emailing people about uh, real estate and, and trying to impart my knowledge. Great. Well, it's been fantastic today. I know that I learned a lot as always when I have conversations with you. So thank you very much for your time and we'll talk soon. Thank you.
I always learn a lot when I talk to Steve and I appreciate his conversation, especially the IRR and the IRR partitioning conversations as those are difficult concepts and he does a really nice job of explaining them. The thing about Steve, he was the first person that I met that was in the same syndication as me, the same sponsor and the same syndication. And the confidence I got learning that, okay, you know, I'm trying this new thing, passive investing in syndications. And now I met another guy, a smart guy who knows what he's doing. And not only is he in the same sponsor, he's in the same deal. And that gave me a lot of confidence. And I'm glad he's one of the founders of our group. And I'm glad to work with him. He does a great job helping out with the blog and a lot of the tools that we're building. So I'm really grateful to have Steve on the team. I really like his take on investing because it is similar to mine in that he doesn't want to just invest in multifamily properties. It's boring. It's like watching paint dry is, is what he said. So he's turned me on to some of these pre-IPO and, and some of the other things and some of the more interesting investments. As long as you're still doing your due diligence and investing small amounts of money in these more interesting things, it does make investing more fun. And really, I just loved his message at the end. More time is more important than more money is basically what he said. And that's what we're all working towards at Left Field Investors is we are trying to build wealth so that we can have time to spend with family and friends and as Steve said, to help others. So what an inspirational way to end the podcast. That was fantastic. I'm going to leave it there and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for hanging out in left field with us today. If you're interested in becoming a left fielder, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.leftfieldinvestors.com or you can send me an email, jim at leftfieldinvestors.com. Thank you for listening to the Passive Investing from Left Field podcast. If you enjoy the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate and review the show. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing said on the show should be considered financial advice. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Passive Investing from Left Field and Left Field Investors. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.